last week, rarely do we tell you what's coming up next at preaching, but last week I boldly said we'd spend two more weeks in James. Uh, but you remember what James said back in, in chapter 4? You, you do not know what tomorrow will bring, right? Instead you ought to say, Lord willing, all that kind of thing. Uh, literally the very next day, plans changed uh, in a good way. Uh, I'd asked Toba Curto a while back if he'd preach for us one more last time before the army steals him from us, or whatever, takes it, whatever they're supposed to do, uh, for his next duty station. And uh, anyway, he got back to me and said, he said no to me a long time ago, and then his wife was out of town, and then he said yes. I won't make conjecture there. Um, but, but he is going to preach for us, and I'm excited about that, really excited about that. And it works out well, because I realized about halfway through the week that chapter, or verse 12 didn't need to be its own sermon in and all, all of itself. Um, and, and I also figured out about halfway through the week that uh, the rest of this could really be four sermons. And so that puts us on a little bit of a, a quickness today. Uh, all, all that to say this. We're finishing James today. Um, some of you are probably glad we're finishing James. It's, uh, you know, head over to, to chapter 5. And I, I say glad because James has been wonderfully, but wonderfully convicting. Uh, it feels like week after week after week. Now, now this last section of, of James we're looking at today is widely acknowledged as being very difficult to understand. If you've read ahead, you, you've probably seen that already. And uh, a big part of that is because he kind of goes into one undeveloped idea after another one, and, and you know, just one after another. And, and, and the reason it's believed anyway is because, well, have you ever written to someone on a greeting card or one of those little things, and you, you have a limited amount of time there, and you start off writing, and it's big font, and you have all these ideas you're going to put into it, and before long you realize, oh, I'm running out of space, and you start to write littler, uh, and you know, deciding to, to cancel out some of the things you're going to say in this, this letter to begin with, and, and everything goes in there. Well, in, in the first century, paper was expensive and not easy to come by, uh, which is why CVS couldn't exist with those four-foot receipts they have. Now, it's it's very likely that James is, is actually running out of space here, is, is one of the theories, and, um, and still has a lot that he wants to say, which results in these staccato-like statements one after another, which, which really explains why James's letter just, just ends abruptly, right? If you, if you look at Hebrews before this, or 1 Peter after it, you'll, you'll see there's this closing, you know, greet so-and-so, and grace and peace, and it, it all comes to a nice ending, but Peter's is just, or sorry, James just comes to an end. Um, so, so that's what we're dealing with, is, is a lot of this is not as explained as maybe we, we want it to be, and we just have to trust that the, the Lord has left some of this a mystery to us, and, and, and that's okay, but um, let's read it, let's, let's seek to understand it uh, as best we can this morning. It's not the best introduction, is it? You're like, so we're not going to learn anything? Okay, uh, beginning in verse 12, James 5. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth 
and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we've, we've been blessed greatly by the book of James. Thank you. We thank you for this, your inerrant word. I, I asked this morning as we un- unpack this dense and, and often for us confusing final portion that you would you'd bless us once again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Looking at verse 12, when, when you and I hear James say, don't, don't swear, don't, don't take oaths, right? We, we tend to think of someone trying to bolster their promise or, or trying to, to get you to believe some questionable story they've just told by saying something along the lines of, I swear to God, right? Or, or maybe someone giving testimony in, a, uh, in, in the court saying, I, I swear to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And uh, what is it? I swear to tell the truth the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That kind of thing. Now, the specific oaths that James is talking about here are the same oaths that actually Jesus addresses back in Matthew 5, verse 34, and the verses that follow. Uh, At this time, uh, people would swear on the temple, or they'd swear on the gold of the temple, or they'd swear on the floor of the temple, or they'd, they'd swear on, on God's name, they'd swear on all sorts of things. And the idea was to, to strengthen what they are saying so that you would believe whatever they're telling you they're going to do, that they're going to actually live up to it and then do it. But, but then later, they would attempt to get out of their promises on all these weird technicalities uh, by saying something like, well, the gold of the temple, it's not a binding oath, right? The temple is, but not just the gold. Uh, it, it's kind of the equivalent, if anyone's ever told you something, they're like, oh, I had my fingers crossed. I don't actually have to tell the truth here, or whatever it might be. And, and what's going on at this time is that the priests are actually mediating this. They're helping them understand, well, okay, that's not a binding thing, so you don't have to keep your word there because of the way you swore it. But you, because of the way you did it, you do. And, and that's kind of what's going on. And so what, what, what Jesus in Matthew 5 and what James here is teaching is simply that as Christians, we are to speak the truth. We are to be honest. Uh, what we say, when we, if we say we're going to do something, that we actually, to the absolute best of our ability, actually do it, that we follow through with it, right? Don't make all these things. Don't, don't, don't make these oaths in that way. Now, now keep in mind that, that oaths are not always condemned in Scripture. In Acts 2.30, uh, it even speaks of, of God making an oath to David. Now, James's point is, is not that oaths are, oaths are always wrong, but that in everyday context, they shouldn't be necessary, you shouldn't be making these oaths anyway because that's not who you are as a Christian. Just be honest. Speak the truth. Make it your sincere aim to just be trustworthy in general. And so then, can you take the oath that you take in a, in a court of law? You can. Um, you can because unfortunately it's, it's not often necessary, right? It is often necessary for these people that don't know you, that want this, this confirmation, this assurance that, you, that you'll be honest. Now, the whole thing's silly, right? Because if you're about to lie anyway, why in the world wouldn't you lie about the oath too? But, but, but you absolutely can take that oath. But, uh, you know, here's the deal, though, uh, particularly among Christians, anyone, anyone really, but particularly among Christians, we, we ought never have to swear to tell the truth because we are already committed to telling the truth. Why in the world would you add that? And, and so practically speaking, I, I think it is helpful to know this, right? Really stop saying, I, I swear I didn't do it, right? I, I, I swear on so-and-so's grave I didn't do it. I, I, I don't say things like I swear to God. It's, it's unnecessary. It's, it, you know, questionably blasphemous even. 
Now, when you speak, speak the truth and, and mean it. Keep, keep your word. Uh, otherwise, as James says here, you will fall under condemnation. And as we've seen before, he's not talking about eternal condemnation here, but, but judgment of some sort. And, and the, the some sort of it is a bit of a mystery that James leaves hanging there. Now, now let's look at verses 13 to 18 where it becomes abundantly clear. Uh, if you get nothing else from this part, it's this, right? That there is no situation in life where prayer to God is not the right response. None. And so first James asks this, is, is anyone among you suffering? And I, I don't want to take this, you know, too academically, right? So let me ask you, put it this way, are, are you suffering? You're here, you're among us, are you suffering? Are you suffering through something health-related? Are you suffering uh, financially, uh, emotionally, relationally, a, any other way? Are, are, are you suffering with, with doubts about God, about the truth of the gospel? Are you praying to God about this suffering? Now, now understand, I'm not asking, have you prayed in past tense? I, I think sometimes we think, okay, I did. I prayed about that. I check it off. And now I move on. And now I haven't prayed for weeks or whatever it might be. I, I'm asking you this. Are you presently, continually praying to the Lord about the suffering that you're experiencing? If not, do so. You need to be talking to the Lord. You need to be asking Him for the endurance. You, you need to be asking Him for the faith in the midst of the suffering because you know how exhausting and discouraging it can be. Now James quickly throws out another short instruction there, right? Uh, is anyone cheerful? Kind of goes the other direction. Are, are you cheerful? I'll ask you that too. And James' imperative, his command here is that if you are cheerful, it's that you, that you sing to God, that you sing out praise to God. And you wonder, well, well Why? Um, because in doing so, you, you and I, we rightly acknowledge that God is the source of our joy. That's why we're cheerful, right? As, as James wrote way back in chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It's a way for us to acknowledge, you know what? This didn't just randomly happen. The joy I feel that I'm experiencing, whether it's, you know, related to people or, or good food or whatever it might be, these aren't just random. These are gifts of the Lord to us. Singing praise to God also keeps us from doing that thing that you and I are so incredibly prone to do where we find joy in the gift while we absolutely forget about God altogether as if they're somehow separate. Um, and we're called to sing because singing is an expression of our thoughts as well as our affections. Okay, and, and you know that. Right? You're, you're cheerful. It, it comes out in, in song. And I know... Not everyone likes to sing, but, but here we're actually being commanded in Scripture to sing to the Lord and, and, and cheerful, you know, when we're cheerful. Uh, it's the outflow of your, your joy in Christ. And so if you're suffering, what do you do? You pray. If you're cheerful, you sing. But what do you do if you're sick? And he gets to that too, right? You see what he says in verse 14? If you're sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, first thing we see here is this biblical model of church leadership. Uh, it's a plurality of elders, right? Plurality, meaning more than one elder we're, we're seeing here, right? If, if you move away, as I know we are in a very transient town, and that's common, that's why we mention these kind of things. Uh, when you are looking for a church family, a new church home, uh, one of the most basic requirements is that right there, right? You find a church that is led by a plurality of elders, not one guy that thinks he's the CEO, uh, but, a, but a group of godly men who are, who are leading that church. Uh, so then, if the sick, um, why, why does it say to call the elders? Right? If you think about this, on the surface, that seems like bad advice. And if you're wondering, why is that bad advice? You're probably not one of the doctors in this room right now. Right? It seems like bad advice because if you're sick, call the doctor. That seems like the obvious thing to do. Uh, Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, right? he was a doctor. 
so why not if you're sick call the doctor? Well, James is not suggesting that you don't also call the doctor. That's, uh, in fact, calling the doctor is the completely obvious thing to do. It's the thing that you and I do. If someone is sick, we, we call the doctor, right? Calling the elders to pray over you, that's the not obvious thing to do. Uh, and, and that's why it needs to be said here. One of the things that we, we learn in Scripture is this, that, that while a doctor may expertly examine us, he might rightly diagnose our sickness, our disease, whatever it might be, uh, and, and while she might prescribe amazing medicine or, or, or perform skillful surgery upon us, uh, ultimately it is not the doctor but the Lord who heals us. And, and so we want to go to God and we want to ask him to, to mercifully heal us. And in this case, he's asking the, the shepherds that the Lord has appointed over an individual, uh, over family, right, to, to call these doctors and ask them to come pray for them. Uh, in the old days, I don't know when that is, right, but in the past, uh, doctors often said, Christian doctors often said, I dress the wounds, but God heals it. That was their understanding of this. And I, uh, I suppose as you come to this passage, you're probably fixated more on, on the strangeness here, right, in, in which the, the elders are instructed to, to pray in a certain way, in the sense of anoint them with oil, verse 14, anointing, oil, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, that seems odd, doesn't it? Now, the only other instance of anointing uh, the sick with oil is found in Mark 6.13. Uh, there, it's in regards to the disciples, and, and Mark, the author of Mark, is saying this. He's just telling the story. He says, the disciples uh, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Uh, unfortunately, neither James nor Mark explains the purpose of the oil in any way that really explains it all for us, which leaves us wondering questions. Is, is this medicinal, right? Is it like medicine? It was, it was often used that way. You know, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? He used oil and and cared for the guy's wounds in that way, it, you know, in which case, is this the equivalent to the elders showing up and, and praying over you and saying, here, take these antibiotics, or here's some gold bond, medicated powder, you know, use this, that kind of thing. Is that what's going on here? And, and while they may have believed and probably did that the oil had healing benefits, what, what James is describing here is something more than medicinal. You see, throughout the, the scriptures, we, we see anointing as God bestowing something upon them. The, the new priests, right, were anointed with, with oil in Exodus 28, 41. God instructed that, that David, right, when he's being put in charge, being, being made king, that he was anointed as oil, right, that, that that's God's blessing upon him. The same with the, the priests. But, but why oil here? Well, because presumably this is, this is not a basic sickness. This, this is something far more chronic, far more debilitating, now, after all, they don't, they don't ask for prayer at the weekly gathering, do they? They ask for the elders to come to them because they can't make it to the elders. That's presumably what's going on, right? The, the, the anointing with oil is this, this symbolic idea of the power of the Holy Spirit bringing about healing. And I imagine it would help the, the sick, the discouraged, the, the one who is suffering, who is, who is down, right? It help their individual faith as, as, they, as their hope gets to be rekindled for healing. As the prayer of these men have been called to shepherd them, come to pray over them. But, but do keep in mind here that James is stressing the effectiveness of prayer. He, he's stressing the, the power of God to heal, not, not the power or effectiveness of oil. We don't see that here or anywhere else. Uh, so then in verse 15, right, it's a, it's a bit of a doozy of a verse, so look at it. Uh, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Uh, let's, let's do this step by step. Uh, this, is, this is the only occurrence in all of the scripture where we see this phrase, the prayer of faith. 
And, and it's a reference, not to any particular prayer, right? Here we're seeing it's a reference uh, to the particular, you know, that is particular to the ministry of the elders. Uh, here, the faith that's being exercised is not the individual who's sick, but rather uh, the elders who are praying for him. Now, the only faith that the sick man or woman exercises is to call upon the elders to pray. And there's certainly some, some faith in that, right? But, but that's the only part we see here, at least at the start, right? But, but it could be that the prayer of the elders leads to the faith of the sick person. That this means of, of grace is, is just that to a, a sick person who is, is struggling in, in doubt or unbelief. Now, now, again, this is a very difficult passage to understand because it sounds like if the elders come and they pray and they use this oil, then the sick person will be saved. That they'll be raised up, right? That any sins they've committed will be forgiven. And that's a lot of things there. What, what, what James means by saved here isn't, isn't even clear. Because even in the Greek, right, the word saved, sozo, can be used in the eternal sense, right? You say, oh, uh, the Lord saved me when I was 17 years old, and we mean that salvifically, right? But, but the exact same word can be used for, right, the, the lifeguard saved me from drowning in, in that temporal, physical sense. And, and so are they praying for this man to receive faith or, or for him to be healed? Uh, I spent a great deal of time this week researching this extensively, I, I'm convinced that James actually, actually means it in both ways. Um, I don't know that this is a promise, that this will indeed happen. In fact, I'm sure it's not. Um, I'm also convinced here that the Lord intends the, the details of this to remain a bit of a mystery to us. And I know that drives us nuts, but that's okay. Um, and, and the interpretation doesn't get any easier as we move on here, does it? When James says the Lord will raise him up, does this mean he's going to be raised from his sickbed? Or is it talking about the resurrection, right? That, that even if he dies here, that he's going to be risen up, risen up on the last day. <clears throat> and again, that phrase, right? Even in the Greek, is used in both ways in other scriptures, so it doesn't clarify it for us. And, and then the last phrase of verse 15 is clearly spiritual. If, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. He, healing and salvation often occur at the same time. We, we see that many places in scripture. I, I think of Mark 2. Do you remember what, what Jesus says to the paralyzed man? Remember he, he's paralyzed and his friends bring him there and they go up on the roof and they rip the roof apart because it's mostly dirt uh, and they lower him down and all that goes on and, and Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. You remember what else Jesus says? He says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And you catch that? The Lord raises him up and the Lord forgives his sins. Um, the, the forgiveness bit leads us to wonder, though, is, is, is he stick, sick because of his sin? Scripture does make a connection between sin and sickness. Not always, though. It's not a one-for-one one way, right? If you have the flu, if you have cancer, it doesn't necessarily mean it's because of some habitual or, you know, awful sin you've committed. In the first century, people typically over-spiritualized their illness. All of it was seen that way. What have you done? What have you done? You, Go read Job, right? See how that goes with his friends, uh, right? Or in John 9, right? Jesus' disciples are, are passing by this blind man and, and they come to this assumption. They, they have two possibilities for this blind man. They ask, who sinned? Was it this man himself or was it his parents? And that's why he's blind. And, and Jesus tells them, right, neither of your answers. He's blind so that the power of God will be seen in the healing that's about to come. And then Jesus restores this man's sight. Now today, we tend to de-spiritualize sickness. 
absolutely no connection at all, wouldn't even consider it, right? Has it, has it ever crossed your mind that someone's physical sickness might be connected to their sin? I mean, other than STDs, when you're being really judgmental kind of thing, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.30 that some are ill because of the sinful way they are partaking in the Lord's Supper. And those kind of things make us really uncomfortable. Um, I think James wants us to at least consider that I may be sick because of some sin. And, and I think the consideration is, is this. You, you don't want to be weighed down with that, but if, if, if you consider that, right, is there some sin that comes to mind, some habitual sin that you've been holding on to? It's so repent, and the Lord is gracious to forgive. And on the other hand, right, if nothing comes to mind, right, there's no sin that you can, you can think of. And I don't mean digging deep and thinking like, well, I was kind of rude to that person, right? We're talking about this long habitual sin that you're holding on to and loving more than God. Well, you know, and if that's not the case, then, then that's certainly not it. Don't linger there. Don't assume you've done something you can't think of. The Lord wouldn't reveal to you what that was. God must be doing something else in your sickness. So a couple of quick points here. First, the individual who is sick is the one who initiates the call of the elders. Uh, the elders don't just show up and knock on the door, right? He, he in this case, recognizes the, the need for that and asks for that. And, and that is a, an act of faith to do that. I think the second question we have is how sick do you actually need to be before calling the elders to anoint you and pray over you? Right? James does seem to have something significant here in mind. It's not the common cold or, you know, Susie stubbed her toe today. Could y'all come over with the gold bond? Uh, right? It's, it's something like that. You, you'll need to pray for yourself, discern when to call the elders, but don't, don't be afraid to. Um, but, but asking elders to pray for you, right? That, that in general should be more common than it actually is. Uh, in the directory, right, or you can call, text, email any of us. We love to pray for you. Love it when people share things. Don't be afraid to do that. Uh, third, don't, don't be afraid to ask God for a miracle. But also don't think only of miracle here. Uh, the healing might come later. It might seem incredibly ordinary. It might be easy for you to look and be like, well, the doctor did this, and then they healed, and that's what happened. But, you, you know, part of what the Scripture helps us do is to see what God is actually, how he's actually working. Uh, Dan Doriani, who is a pastor in our denomination, when, when the elders he's a part of have anointed and prayed over sick in the past, he, he says only a few of them were, were healed Im immediately. That was incredibly rare. Uh, some, he says, were gradually healed gradually under the care of doctors and medicine or surgeries. He said still others received incredible peace in their sickness, and yet nothing, no physical healing at, at all. You see, when, when sick, pray expecting God to work in you, even if not exactly the way you desire. I think that's part of our trusting the Lord and, and, and His sovereign will in that regard. Uh, fourth, He does not describe an individual with the gift of healing uh, or a healing ministry. And I, I, I point that out because, you know, you, every once in a while someone will send me these YouTube videos of some guy claiming to heal people left and right and he's out in the street making YouTube videos and, instead of in the cancer wing of some children's hospital. Uh, but I, I mentioned this, right? This is a this is in the context of the local church ministry, not some individual running around. Um, now let's look at verse 16. I, I, I might come back and preach this as a separate sermon later on because I, I love the beautiful vision it gives us for how we are to minister to each other. I'd love to go deeper than we have today. Uh, it's quite simple here. We'll see. All right. Anyway, verse 16, we, we are commanded in two ways, and the first of which is this, confess your sins to one another. Now, it doesn't say confess your sins to a priest or to a pastor even, but to, to one another. 
Uh, the obvious question is, why can't I just confess my sins to God? Isn't that enough? Well, yeah, definitely confess your sins to God, but that's not what God's Word is clearly telling us right here. The, the significance here of, of, of confessing to one another is that it brings our sin to light in a really unique way, right? Which is perhaps the most significant and powerful step you can take if you are serious about uh, battling a sin. And when I talk about that, we're talking about a habitual sin, right? Something that just seems to have a grip on you. Uh, the, the, the sin of lust nourished through pornography has a, uh, a grip on so many because it flourishes in the dark corners where it, where it remains and people are afraid to bring that out into the light. The, the same is true of sins such as greed and and that internal bitter complaining that we might have of discontentment, right? They all flourish in the dark. Um, some of you know I've got a, a bit of a turtle obsession over the year. Rudy's visiting here. He's seen me dive into rivers to catch turtles before. <clears throat> uh, one of the interesting things about turtles, this is going somewhere, I promise, uh, is, is you see them get out on the shore, right? And they stick their arms out and they lay out in the sun. What, what they're doing there is, is bringing their, their body and their shell out into the light and and the light actually eats away at this moss and nasty stuff that grows on them. If you've ever seen a turtle where there's no place for them to get out of the water and, and sun themselves, they get covered with this moss. Eventually they can't move their arms. It just destroys them. And, and it's just this kind of this beautiful illustration of when they bring this nastiness to the light, that's, that's when it finally gets dealt with and, and eaten away at. Uh, so I, I, I mention that, right, because, because of this call for you to confess your sins to one another is a big and, and, and dangerous thing it feels like. And, but it's also incredibly important. When we bring our sin to the light, that's when it really begins to get dealt with. So, so my encouragement is this, to let go of the prideful protection of your reputation and find a brother or sister in Christ that you trust so that you can be truly vulnerable with them by confessing your sins to each other. And the flip side of this is, is be the kind of person that is trustworthy that someone can share that with you and, and know that you will encourage them to fight that, to, uh, to battle against that, but not share that with anyone else. Now, now the second command here is uh, pray for one another. Not say you'll pray for one another, but actually do it. And, and this means you've got to start by asking people how you can be praying for them. I would love that to be probably one of the most common things that we do as a, co a covenant community, right? That we are constantly asking each other, how can I pray for you? And then doing it. Follow up, you know, find out more how you can do that. Maybe even get real crazy and ask someone you're really close with, right? What, what sin are you struggling with right now that I can pray for you in regards to? So pray for one another. Uh, and, and again, here at the end of verse 16, we, we have a hard-to-understand statement. That's kind of James's theme here, right? Confess and pray that you may be healed. Healed in the sense of, of sickness? Or, or, or does James mean it more in the sense of set free from, from the sin that you're confessing to the individual, right? For, to a fellow Christian. And, and the answer is, I don't know, but James does give an example of the power of prayer. He, he points to this story from, from 1 Kings 17 and 18, if you want to go read it later, right? It's it's where the prophet Elijah is, is, is praying for there to be no rain, right? And there is no rain. And, and then later he, he prays for rain and, and there is rain. And really go read it sometime because it's one of my favorite stories in scripture. Um, there's no healing in the story though, not at all. And, and if you notice, James doesn't refer to Elijah by his unique call as a prophet. He, in fact, he, if you notice, he kind of goes out of his way to describe Elijah as a man with a nature like ours, right? Not, not a prophet, it's not used there, but a man, he's saying it's, He's like you. And look how powerful his prayers were. Uh, you know, what, what, what does James mean then when he implies that Elijah is a, is a righteous person? And, and again, it's, it's not in the sense of this prophet set apart here, but um, not sinless, that's for sure. And how then is he righteous? Well, he believes God's word. 
That, that's how he's a righteous person here. And, and asking for no rain and, and later asking for rain, he's actually praying the Lord's words back to him. He, he didn't just bring that out of nowhere and say, hey, you know what would be a neat thing? You know what be a neat party trick we could do with these idol worshipers here? Is if I just said there's no rain. And that's not what he goes, right? He's calling on God to do what God actually said he would do in Deuteronomy 11, 17. And, and that's where God says, you know what? If the people turn from me and they're going and they're worshiping idols, if that's what they're doing, I will shut up the heavens, meaning I will stop it from raining. There will be a drought that will be suffering from that. And so Elijah is a righteous man because he trusts God's word. He knows God's word. And, he, and he's showing, showing that in the way that he prays fervently, expectantly, that God will actually do what he said he'd do in this situation. And the Lord powerfully answers Elijah's prayers. And, and your prayers and my prayers can be powerful like Elijah's prayers too. And, and that's what James wants to get across here. They can be powerful when they, are, when they are prayed in line with God's purposes and His promises, when, when they are prayed fervently, right, with that confidence that, that God will work in mighty ways. And, and listen, you, you, won't, you won't pray fervently until you believe that your prayers actually matter, that the Lord actually hears them. That's what James is trying to motivate you to with the story of Elijah. He's a guy just like you, but made in the image of God just like you, seeking the Lord just like you. And look how powerful his prayers are. Yours can be too. Now, now look at the last two verses. Here, here James is addressing what to do when someone among you wanders away from the truth, right? As, as Sam Albury poetically says, to wander from the truth is to wander from life. They, they are wandering away from God. They are wandering away from the gospel. They are wandering away from the covenant community. And, and last week we... we Last week we had a family visiting from Alaska. Don't worry, it's nothing bad, so they're not about to get thrown on the bus. But they, during the passing of the peace, one of their, their children had wandered off, and they didn't know where he was, and, 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 and right? So they're looking around the sanctuary thinking, where is he? You got the balcony, you got out the front door, and, and they're wondering where he did. And, and, and what do you think they do when he wandered off? You, you think they sat in their seats and, you know, told the people next to them, they started self-righteously talking about, you know what? That three-year-old is just making bad decisions in life. You think that's all they did? <laughs> that's the kind of thing we sometimes do, though, isn't it? No, they went and they found him. Let's go find him. They split up. They go find him, and they bring him back to his seat safely. And, and, and so, so is James here talking about believers or unbelievers? And, and that's the question, because of the way you see the rest of this goes makes you wonder, right? He, and again, he's talking about both. He's talking about anyone who is associated with the visible church. So some who wander are true believers who are struggling in doubt with hurts. They maybe are loving the world. Maybe something awful's happened and they're mad at God for it. Maybe they're embracing some sin that just has a grip on them and, and they just need to be brought back. Maybe they need to be called to repentance. Maybe they, they already feel guilty for what it is and, and they just need to be welcomed and encouraged to come back. That you're welcome here. The Lord calls you back in grace, right? Uh, Similar to what what Paul says in Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in trans any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. At the other time, some of these might be unbelievers that are closely associated with the church. Maybe they're even professing faith in Christ. And, uh, you know, and they come to faith through the whole process of this going and, and bringing them back. Maybe that's why James says when, when you bring a wanderer back, you save his soul from death. Now, now notice the responsibility here. It's the opposite of all the other things we saw before, right? Uh, the responsibility here is, is not on the one who wanders away. 
It's not when you come on back, whenever you're good and ready, you come on back, right? It's, it's, it's also not on the elders as if it's only their responsibility to go get him. It's all of us, the entire covenant community. If you notice someone has, has stopped showing up to worship or you, you hear of someone who's, who's wandering into some sin, right? Or, or you sense that someone is just struggling with doubt, you have a responsibility to go after him or her. You can go alone if you're comfortable doing that. You can bring someone with you. But, but what you can't do is nothing. What you can't do is say, am I my brother's keeper? You can't dis- disregard it. The search and rescue is your calling whenever it is needed. Every single time, that's how we love and how we minister to one another. And so if anyone has come to your mind when reading this or hearing this, um, even if they're not part of Manhattan Prez, you, you know what to do. To, to seek after them. And if you need advice or wisdom on how to do that, by all means, come talk to me. All right, so that's James. Um, it's a mixed bag coming to an end of it. And I admit, I, I feel like this is probably one of the worst sermons I've ever preached as far as just the confusingness and ability to put time into that. But I don't think I'm supposed to say that in the sermon, are you? I'll tell you that later. Strike that from the record. Um, but this is James. James has been like a difficult workout, right? It is, it's been painful at times because James really reveals to us just how weak we are. You know, it's brutally obvious, but at the same time, this book of James has been challenging us. It's been making our faith stronger. It's been encouraging us to be more like Jesus. You know, James has forced us to honestly answer questions like, what kind of Christian am I? Is my faith real? Is my faith a living faith in the way that James points to it here? Is, is there visible evidence of the fruit of the Spirit indwelling in me? It's also asked us or forced us to ask questions of ourselves as a church, right? Do, what kind of church are we? Do we really care about each other? Do we care about the physical needs of others? Do we care about the souls of others? In short, James has been working to bring your, your professed theology into full eclipse with your heart theology. Right? If you had to summarize James, that, that's it. Just bringing your, what you say is true about God, what you say you believe, and, and, and what, what is obviously in practice in your life, bringing those two things together. Um, does the way I actually live reflect what I claim to believe? And for that, I think it has been, it's been wonderful for us. Because James wants, wants to see the gift of grace that God has bestowed upon you in the gospel. He wants to see that permeate your life in a very real way that brings joy and brings obedience and, and, and brings about all the benefits of the covenant of grace. And I, I think you want that too. Uh, most of the feedback I've gotten along the way is that it sounds like James is talking directly to you um, in a good way. And I, I am thankful to the Lord for that. Finally, I... I, I will say this, years ago when we finished Philippians, we actually took a service and just read through the book of James, um, just the entire, sorry, the book of Philippians, not James, um, a- afterwards, and, and we're not going to do that, but I, I am begging of you that sometime today or maybe tomorrow morning, don't put this off, but that you would just sit down, having studied James now, having seen much of it explained, you know, not the last part real well. Uh, but most of it explained, right, that you just go back and you read through the book of James and, and let everything we've been studying and digging into just, just wash over you again.
Okay? That's, that's what I'm asking you. Please. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to pray often, uh, to pray for each other, to, to ask the elders and others to pray for us. Teach us to, to sing your praises when we are cheerful. Teach us to confess our sins to trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. May, may all these things, prayer and confession and, and praise of you, be found in abundance in this covenant community. Lord, thank you for the book of James. May it continue to challenge how we live in the days and the weeks and the months and the years ahead. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.